The following is a recording of Pastor Brian Lindley of Grace Bible Church preaching on Galatians 3, 15-25 on Sunday, February 7, 2021. Father, we pray you would open up our hearts to your word as we open up our eyes to your word. We pray that we would hear what you would have us to hear, that you would impress upon our heart what you would have us to do in response to the preaching of your word. And we pray that you would open up hearts to salvation through the preaching of your gospel. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, as Brittany read the sermon text this evening, you might notice a change in Paul's tone from last week when Doug preached and the text began, You foolish Galatians! And this evening, the text begins, brothers, brethren. And Paul will use that that gentle term, brethren, seven more times in the letter. Why the change of heart? Why the change of tone? Because as, um, as Timothy George astutely summarizes in his commentary on Galatians, he says that this is the beginning of a passage that will seek to answer the questions of what makes a family a family, Who are the true children of Abraham, the heirs of the promise, and thus entitled to call one another brothers and sisters? In tonight's passage, Paul is going to explain that obeying the rules does not make one part of the family of God. Neither does disobeying the rules disqualify one from God's family. And it's as true today as it was in the time that Paul wrote this letter. It was true 2,000 years before he wrote the letter, and you might be surprised by that, that 2,000 years before Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians, keeping the rules were not what made one part of the family of God. And so how were people saved in the Old Testament before Jesus came? So we're going to look tonight and see how Rabbi Paul answers that question for us. So in Galatians 3, starting in 15 through 18, Paul says first that even humans, when they make a covenant, it can't be amended after it's been ratified. And therefore, God's covenants are even all the more sure. So people in the Bible took covenants a little more seriously than we do. Um, We don't take promises as seriously as we should, but in the Bible times, covenants were unalterable. If you're if you reading the Old Testament, back in Joshua, in chapter 9, Israel made a covenant with these people called the Gibeonites, who duped them, deceived them into thinking that they were from some faraway land. And they made a covenant of peace with them. And then when they went to the town of Gibeon, they couldn't attack the town of Gibeon, because it was the people they just made the covenant with. And uh, the leaders were upset about it, but... Joshua said, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. And so the covenants, even human covenants in the Old Testament were unalterable. And so applying this to God's covenant with Abraham, Paul says that the law that was given 430 years after the promise to Abraham doesn't change the promise. The blessings of Abraham were given by promise. Remember last week, Doug preached... Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness from verse 6 of Galatians, quoting verse 6, 
chapter 15 of Genesis, the law that came later didn't change the promise that came before it. And then second, Paul says, the promise to Abraham was also to Abraham's offspring, which is ultimately, Paul says, one person, Jesus Christ. Now, the ESV uses the word offspring. I think the New American uh, Standard and King James, NIV, all use the word seed. You might have a translation that says descendants. Offspring and seed are, are better because they're collective singulars, which means they're a word that's singular but can mean more than one. So you could have one offspring or one seed, or you could have a mini offspring or a whole bag of seed. So the, the word singular but it can mean more than one. So where does Paul get off applying it to one person? Well, Paul knows his Old Testament, and the promised offspring of Abraham, by the time of David, a thousand years later, that promise to Abraham had been narrowed to one person. In 1 Samuel 7, God says to David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his kingdom, the throne of his kingdom forever. It's important to understand this, so that even before Jesus was born, even before Jesus was born, the Jews understood that the promise to Abraham would be fulfilled through a person, through the Christ, the child, who would be king, who would be anointed, which Hebrew is Messiah, Greek is Christ, so they were looking forward to the Messiah or looking forward to the Christ. And Paul recognizes that Jesus is that child, Jesus is that Christ child, so that he is the offspring who inherits the promises of Abraham. So all the promises of Abraham are ultimately inherited through Jesus. Later on, at the end of the chapter, chapter 3, which Doug will pick up next week, in verse 29, if you're looking at your Bible, Paul says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant and heirs according to the promise. So Doug will unpack that next week. But Paul says the promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus and he inherits all the promise. But, but if you're in Christ, then you inherit everything he inherits and you're part of the family through him. But in tonight's passage, Paul's focus is on the Old Testament. And in 3.18, he concludes in that, those first few verses that the blessings that were promised to Abraham, who has died, were passed on to his offspring the same way that they were given to him by promise, as an inheritance. Now, an inheritance is not earned. An inheritance is a gift. And if you want to inherit the promise, you have to be a child of God. And you cannot earn adoption into God's family. God adopts only by grace, as we talked about earlier this evening, and we've been singing about all night. God only adopts by grace. And a surprising number of Christians think that the Old Testament saints were saved by works, while believers are saved by grace. I heard that even in seminary class, somebody thought that. That you know, the Old Testament, they're saved by works, and the New Testament, we're saved by grace. But we see here that logic is not correct. Before Jesus came, saints were saved by grace through trusting the promises of God. That promise was initially given to Abraham 
later clarified to David, and as I said, came to be focused on a specific person, the Messiah to come. So in the Old Testament, to believe God was to believe in Messiah. Since Jesus came, saints are still saved by grace through trusting the promise of God. Same way. And this trust is still focused on a specific person. The same person, the Messiah or Christ. Only what they knew by promise, we know by name, that the Messiah is Jesus Christ. But in the New Testament era, to believe in God is to believe in Jesus Christ. His promise is kept in him. But salvation is always and only through the entire Bible, by grace, through faith, in the promises of God. Paul understands that because he understands the, the Bible in its historical redemptive context. So he can, he can explain, well, the promise to Abraham came 430 years before Abraham. He knows how to break things down that way. That's not the typical way the rabbis read the Old Testament. Most of the rabbis in his day would what we would call kind of proof text the Old Testament. They would pick out verses to mine spiritual truths from. They weren't really reading it in context. And really a surprising number of people today, I mean many Christians, if not most Christians, still treat the Bible the same way. They pull out verses out of context or they read you know, just one or two verses at a time in a daily devotional or, or maybe a chapter at a time. And if you're doing that, especially in the Old Testament, it, it makes it very difficult to, to grasp the sweeping narrative of the Old Testament. It's almost impossible to understand the Old Testament if you're just reading it a couple of chapters a day. But if you take it in large doses and you look at the whole picture and you understand the books in their context, then God's plan of salvation in the Old Testament begins to look extremely gracious. It begins to look all by grace. So let's take a moment to do that this, morning, this, this, this evening. So this will be the interactive portion of the sermon. Um, so kids, pay attention. We always need your help during this part. Especially now, could you tend to know your Old Testament better than the adults do? <laughs> so the promise to Abraham is given in what book of the Bible? Somebody, somebody shout that out. Genesis. Right. Thank you. One of the promises to Abraham was an heir, a child. Who was his child, his son? Isaac. And who was Isaac's son? Jacob. That's right. Now, another promise given to Abraham was a, a land. What was the name of the land where they were supposed to live in? Canaan. Right. Now, the promised land. Yeah, but it had a name. This is the promised land. <laughs> Now, at the end of Genesis, are Jacob and his family living in Canaan? No. Where are they living? No. Shout out. Egypt. Why are they in Egypt? Because of famine. So Jacob did not inherit the promise at the end of the book of Genesis. Because God had a bigger plan. Now, what book comes um, after Genesis is Exodus... And at the beginning of Exodus, Jacob and his generation have died. And what happened to Jacob's family after he died? They were put in slavery. Yeah. Why were they put in slavery? Did they do something wrong? Isaac? That's right. 
they were not put in slavery because they did anything wrong. They weren't put in time out. They were being blessed by God. And because they were being blessed, they were multiplying. And the, Egypt, the Egyptians got scared of them, so they put them in slavery. Now, they were not enslaved because of their disobedience. And they were not freed because of their obedience. Flip over to Exodus 2 real quick. In Exodus 2, verses 23 through 24, God tells us through his word why he rescued his people. Exodus 2, 23 through 24. says, The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. When God heard their groaning, he remembered his covenant with Abraham. The exodus was God keeping his promise to Abraham. And if you remember the story, any Israelite who wanted to be rescued had to paint the doorway of their home with blood from a lamb that had been slain. And this was an act of faith, an act of belief that painting that doorway with the blood of the lamb that was killed would keep them from being killed. And they were saved by grace through faith that God would keep his promise to them. What's the next book after Exodus? And what, what is the book of Leviticus about, somebody? It is the law. What law? There's a lot of books of law. What's the Leviticus law about? Levitical law. What does that mean? What's a Levite? Yeah, they were priests, right. So it's the priestly law. God knew when he gave them the law in Exodus that they were going to fail and mess that up. And so by grace... He built into the law a plan to deal with their failure to keep the law. And the solution to them not keeping the law was not their obedience. The solution was rather faith in God through substitutionary atonement. Leviticus is full of animals being killed to atone for the sins of God's people. And this offers salvation by faith in God's promise that killing that animal would substitute for killing them. Now, what's the next book after Leviticus? Numbers, that's right. I told you the kids are so helpful in this. <laughs> in Numbers, the people come to the land that God had promised to Abraham, and they have a chance to enter it, and do they enter it? No, why not? Yeah, because they were afraid, and they had unbelief. Numbers 14, 11 says... And the Lord says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Now, you may never thought about that, but they didn't get turned away from the promised land because they broke one of the Ten Commandments. It was not for violating the law that they couldn't go in. It was because of a lack of faith that they were not allowed to enter into the promised land. Hebrews 3, 19 says, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. But even as they were turned away because of unbelief and they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, God was incredibly gracious to them. The scripture says their shoes did not wear out and he gave them quail and manna in the desert, in the wilderness he fed them. And he brought them back 40 years later. When he brings them back, after numbers is 
the book of, heard it before. What does Deuteronomy mean? Anybody know? Second law. It's like second sermon. Well, second verse, same as the first. By the end of Deuteronomy, you learn that the future doesn't look any brighter than the past. Deuteronomy 31, 16 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. So Moses has done this great work of leading these people all these years, and he's about to die, and the Lord gives him this encouraging note. You are about to lie down with your fathers, and then this people will rise, and they will whore after foreign gods among them in the land that they were entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. The Lord knew that was going to happen. Some of us need to be reminded that God knows the sins that we're going to commit before we even commit them. He does not love us less when we sin, nor more when we repent. For those who trust in Jesus, God's love is perfectly consistent by grace. And when he looks at us, he remembers his covenant and he remembers his son. And others of us need to be reminded to look at fellow brothers and sisters in the same way and love them with the same grace and the same mercy. Not more when they're faithful and less when they fail, but to love as God loved and to forgive as God forgave us in Christ. After Deuteronomy in the book of Joshua, the people finally moved into the promised land, but that was not a sign that all their problems were solved. At the end of that book, Joshua summarizes their history from the time of Abraham. And then he says something that's so famous, you can probably finish the quote if I start it. He says, choose this day, but as for me, we will serve the Lord. And he says that to the people, and all the people say, we also will serve the Lord. He is our God. People put this on their wall of their house. But what's less well known is Joshua's reply. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God, he is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. I'm taking this time to go through this to show you that the Old Testament is not a story of people saved by works. It's a story of people lost in works. Just hopelessly lost. They are, Joshua says, not able to serve the Lord. And after Joshua comes, judges the most wicked book of all, in those days it says there was what? No king in Israel. And everyone did was right in their own eyes. And what was right in their eyes were some horrible, disgusting things. They had the law... But with no king, they were like children with the parents away. No one there to teach them to obey. So you think, reading through the Old Testament, hey, a king will fix the problem. Well, the next seven books of the Bible are about kings. I mean, it's like a festival of kings. There's so many kings. They didn't help all that much. In fact, many of them made things much, much worse. So that the wicked kings eventually got the people kicked out of the land of Canaan that they were in. And still God is gracious to his sinful people. In the middle of 2 Kings, as you're reading through it, you'd find this verse 
1323. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Salvation by grace, because of God's promise to them. And on and on it goes. The back half of the Old Testament are the books of prophets. The prophets came to, to preach to the people the law. And if the preaching ever helped, it was not for long. It condemned them because they could not obey. Their only hope, as is ours, is God's faithfulness to keep his own word. The prophet Micah summarizes this in chapter 7 of Micah where he looks forward to a day when God would cleanse his people forever. And he says, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show, listen to it, faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. That's what Paul's laying out in Galatians, that salvation was always based on God's promise to Abraham. The Old Testament, understood in context, never teaches that the law gave life. The law only brought death. In fact, the day the law was given, and the people made the image of the golden calf, and then Moses came down, he called the people of God to his side, and they took swords and they went through, and it says about 3,000 people died that day. The day that the law was given, 3,000 people died. It actually says about 3,000 died, which is very interesting, because the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit came down, it says that about 3,000 were saved that day. The day the law was given, about 3,000 died. The day the Spirit came, about 3,000 came to life in the Spirit. The law always gave death. The Spirit brings life. This is all clearly written if you take the time to read through the Old Testament. It's amazing, surprising how many Christians just don't really like read the Old Testament or haven't even read the whole Bible through. And it's surprising, maybe would be very surprising to you how quickly you can do it. It takes about 75 hours for the average person to read the whole Bible. 75 hours. You read an hour a day, you could finish it in three months. Half an hour, you'd be done in six months. I inherited, when my dad died, one of his Bibles where he uh, wrote in it the day he started Genesis and the day he stopped Revelation, and it was less than three months. My dad had a sixth grade education. Now, how did he do that? I know I did it because he wrote it in the Bible. Underneath the dates, he wrote, I turned off the TV. Not only can you read the entire Bible a lot less time than you think, but you can read a lot of the books of the Bible in one sitting. 59 of the 66 books of the Bible take two and a half hours or less to read. You could read them instead of watching a movie. 36 books of the Bible are shorter than a sitcom. Think about that. Next time you go to turn on the TV, you can sit down. There's 36 books of the Bible you can read instead. The best things I've learned from the Old Testament were not learned in seminary. <clears throat> they were learned from reading and reading and rereading the Bible. And not programmatically, just a chapter a day, but the way that I read any book, the way you read books. You know, just picking them up and just reading pages and pages. And some days that's 15 minutes, some days that's half an hour, 
Take a lazy Saturday and spend two hours reading through a book of the Bible you've never read before. Read it all in one sitting and see how it comes to life. It helps to get an easy-to-read translation, especially one you've never read before. I encourage you to get a translation of the Bible you've never read before and just read it. It makes the text come alive. The, uh, the New Living is very helpful for just something loose and easy to read in the Old Testament. The New English Translation is, is excellent, and you can get that for free at Bible.org. Um, or the ESV has a reader's version where they take the, the pesky verse and chapter numbers out, so it just reads like a book. Just sit down and just read it. Your next vacation, pick a long book of the Bible, like a, a, an Ezekiel, and say, hey, I got a week, I'm going to read Ezekiel for the first time ever. Seriously, if you want to learn how God deals with his people, in two months you could read 2,000 years of history of God walking with his people. And I guarantee you if you do, you'll meet a lot of people that remind you of you. And you can see how God deals with them. All right, enough of that. We must move on. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 19 through 21 Paul asks and answers two questions about the law. So first, why was the law given? So if it was always salvation from the promise, and if the law didn't save people, if it didn't bring about the promise of God, then why give the law? And his answer is that the law was added because of transgression. It was added because of transgression. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But in the rest of those next couple of verses... He makes uh, two subpoints using some confusing and off-debated language about mediators and, and angels. But it's, these points are simple. He makes one point that first he just wants to make it clear that the law is secondary to the promise. It's inferior to the promise because the law was given through mediator. So the law was given to Moses and Moses gave the law to the people. But the promise was given to Abraham directly. And the people that Moses was leading, they said when they saw the the smoke and the fire and the thunder, the flashes of lightning over Mount Sinai and heard the sound of the trumpet at Mount Sinai, they were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they told Moses, you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. So he was a mediator between them. But not so with Abraham, who received the promise directly from God. This is another sign that the law brings death and the promise brings life. The people had good reason to fear because the law revealed their sin. So Paul says there, because the law was given through a mediator, it's secondary to the promise that was given directly to Abraham. Secondly, the law was temporary. It was given until the promise would come. The law was not permanent, but the promise was permanent. And he'll return to that in the verses down below, so we'll come back to that point. I want to circle back now to his main point in these verses. The law was added because of transgression, because of sin. So what does that mean? Well, it could mean one of three things. The rabbis thought it meant that the law was given to restrain people from sinning. The rabbis thought the law was given to prevent sin, to keep people from sinning. But after just recapping the Old Testament, 
I'd ask you, how well did that work out? Like when the people got the law, did they get better? No. If you read the history of the Old Testament, it is not a history of progressive growth in obedience to God. Things go downhill a lot. So the law couldn't have been given to restrain sin because it didn't do a very good job of that. The second thing it could mean is, is that it was given to demonstrate to men and women that they were unholy. Or as the, the New English Bible translation captures it and says, the law was added to make wrongdoing a legal offense. That it was added to convict people. And as one, one commentator said, Satan would have us to prove ourselves holy by the law which God gave to prove us sinners. God gave it to prove us sinners, but Satan would use it to try to get people to prove themselves holy. And so it is true that the law was given in that sense. The law does convict us of sin and proves us guilty before God. But there's a third thing that Paul talks about in Romans. He doesn't explain it here, but that he means by the law being given because of sin. In Romans 7, he says that the law increases sin. Romans 7, verse 7 through 8, he says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And he goes on to say that while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit in death. So we were like Adam and Eve. It became sure that they would eat the forbidden fruit as soon as God said, of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil you shall not eat. So this raises the second question. So if the law was given to convict us of sin and even increases our sin by stirring up the sinfulness that's within us, then Paul asks in verse 21, is the law contrary then to the promises of God? Does it contradict or does it work against God's promise? And the reader would expect Paul to say, yeah, because he's been spending the whole passage contradicting the law with the promise. But instead he says no in the strongest possible terms. He says, may it never be, or absolutely not, mea godoito. And he says, if any law could give life, then such a law would have been given. The problem is not the law, the problem is us. As he also explains in more detail in the book of Romans where he says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring to me death? By no means, same language, by no means. Meganoito, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. So the law actually serves the promise, helps the promise by leading us to Christ. And just by the way, on that 
where Paul says that if a law could have been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. There are many religions that teach different ways to reach God. And Christians get blasted for teaching that only through Christ is their salvation. But Paul makes it clear there. If God could have given a law to be saved, he would have given a law. It's helpful to take a, just a time out and think about sometimes what we're teaching. When we're teaching the Christian scriptures. Which teach that God so loved the world that he gave... He sacrificed, forsook, put to death, crucified his only son so that whosoever believeth in him might have eternal life. Now, if someone puts to death their child to save you, or in the case of Christ, someone gives up their own life to save you, you know two things. You know there was no other way that you could be saved, and you know that person loves you very much. Very much. If there was any way that God could have given a rule that would have allowed us to be saved, he would have given a rule and spared his son. The only way to salvation is through Jesus. That's why Jesus had to die. He prayed and asked if there were any way that this cup could pass from him. But there was not. And then here we come to verse 22 a very critical verse in the text where Paul is saying that the law eliminated every possible option for salvation except faith in Christ. Galatians 3:22 but the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that by the promise the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The first thing I would like to point out about this verse is how similar it is to verse 14. And I think Micah can put it on the screen for us, and you can see them side by side. 3.14 says, can you back up a slide? It says that in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we'd receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In verse 22, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So there's three purpose clauses in those two verses. They all start with the same Greek word, which may be translated at that or so that or in order that. And if you put them into the similar subject verb order like I did before, rearrange the words, you can see how parallel they are. So that to the Gentiles might come the blessing of Abraham in Christ Jesus. Can you go to the... Next one. So that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And the third purpose clause, so that those who believe might be given the promise by faith in Christ Jesus. These three parallel purpose clauses show that the blessing promised to Abraham is fulfilled in the gift of the Spirit. And this blessing is given to Gentiles who believe, and this blessing comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone joins God's family in the same way. Back in 14, he's talking about the promises to Abraham. 22, he's talking about salvation through Christ. Old Testament saints, New Testament believers, Jews, Gentiles, they all receive the same inheritance offered to Abraham if they receive it by faith in Christ, who we know is Jesus. 
Now, the three purpose clauses explain the purpose of what was written before them. So there's something happens so that something else could occur. There's a cause followed by an effect. And we, know, we just saw the effect is the same in all three cases. The effect is that Gentiles, we, those who believe, might receive or be given the blessing of Abraham, that is the promise of the Spirit, through or by faith in Christ. That's the result. But what's the action? So let's look at the complete sentences. Micah, could you put up 3, 13 through 14 and 3:22? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus may be given to those who believe. I want you to see the connection, which is bolded. Scripture imprisoned, shut up, everyone under sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So the Old Testament scriptures put us on death row, and Jesus Christ freed us, redeemed us by being executed in our place. He took the curse of the law. He gives us the blessing of the promise. Jesus accomplished all of that for those, only for those who trust in him. Do you trust in him? Are you trusting in Jesus to do that for you? Or are you still trusting in your own good works, your ability to try harder, to do better? to overcome the law on your own. Finally, in verses 23 through 25, Paul compares scripture to a Greek person known as a pedagogue, or your translation may read tutor or guardian. Um, a better image for us would be like a strict nanny. The role includes both a role of teaching and also a role of guiding the child into adulthood. And the primary point is that this is a role that is temporary. You don't hire a babysitter forever. You, you don't get a nanny forever. Well, some, some do, but uh, you don't get a pedagogue forever. Um, the point is it's temporary. So Paul makes this shocking claim that it, it's not our obedience that releases us from the need for this pedagogue, this guide. The law doesn't guide us into righteousness. The law convicts us and guides us to Christ Jesus. And then we are declared righteous, we are justified, we are called something that we were not by faith in Christ Jesus. And he says that now that faith has come, believers are no longer under this pedagogue, this guide. You can be part of the family of God, you can be one of the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Tying all of this together, Earlier tonight, we read Psalm 24. And that was included because it illustrates the point that Paul's making. So when he speaks of the scripture shutting us up, he doesn't just mean the, the, the Torah. He means the Old Testament. So we read Psalm 24, and let's recall what it said in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, 
he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And when you heard those verses, you might have heard that as an encouragement to try to clean your hands and purify your heart. But the scripture says we're not capable of doing that apart from God. That's why in the psalm, the psalmist looks outside of himself for salvation. And he says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The hope of salvation is not cleaner hands and a purer hearts through obedience. It's perfectly clean hands and a totally pure heart through justification, through being declared what Christ is because of faith in him. And we will never ever have that apart from Jesus. But he had it. Andrew Peterson has a song that summarizes using Psalm 24, the complete inability of the Jews or us Gentiles to meet the demands of the law. He says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? The one who utters no untrue word, whose hands are clean, whose heart is pure. Who can ascend that hill? There is none righteous, no, not one. We are prodigal daughters and wayward sons. We don't know the half of the hurt we've done, the countless we have killed. Our priests are cheats, our prophets are liars. We know what the law requires, but we pile our sins up higher and higher. Who can ascend that hill? And I am a sheep who has gone astray. I have turned aside to my own way. Have mercy on me, son of David. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, hear the voice of the word made man, the spotless sacrificial lamb, a body you gave me. Here I am, I have come to do your will. And no one takes my life, you see. I lay it down willingly, and I will draw all men to me when I ascend that hill. The Israelites knew that they could not ascend the hill at Sinai. They could not even touch it, lest they die. But Jesus, who was God in the flesh, completely fulfilled the law and then ascended the hill at Calvary and took the death that we were due. And his resurrection proves that salvation can be gained by trusting in him through faith alone. He is the answer to the promise to Abraham. And so as we conclude tonight, we're going to ask the worship team to come back up and we're going to sing what a beautiful name. Because what was known in the Old Testament by promise, we know by name. The Messiah has come. Christ has risen and his name is Jesus. And his name is truly beautiful for liberating us from the demands and the punishment of the law. His name frees us from prison and it joins us to God's family and it makes us heirs to the promise of God to Abraham. So I invite you to stand and let's celebrate the beautiful name of Jesus. If you have questions about this message or Grace Bible Church, 
please contact us at info at gbclakeland.org or visit our website, gbclakeland.org. Thank you for listening.